All right, everybody, welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? All right, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're visiting, I'm really glad that you decided to take time out of your weekend to come uh, worship God, to learn more, to surrender more so that God can transform you more. If you're trying to find God, I think this is a great place to do that. Um, it's difficult. We don't, it's kind of funny. When you become a Christ follower, you forget how hard it is to take the step of faith to believe in something that's as supernatural as God. So that's basically where we are. And I was thinking on the way in today, because of the time change, that technically my sermon doesn't start for another hour. <laughs> right? So I have like a lot of time today. Um, but we're in this series, and we've been looking at Peter, and he's been talking about the Gnostics. Those are people that had already, within, I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, within 20, 25 years of Jesus dying on the cross and resurrecting, and the church being started. So you're really within 15 years, probably. People were already coming in saying, well, th- this isn't true at all. This Jesus didn't have to die. You can live your life however you want. You can go from orgy to orgy. You can do whatever you want to do because what you do in your body has nothing to do with your spirit. And Jesus really wasn't human. He never really was here. He didn't really have to die. And he didn't resurrect. Um, and so we have this knowledge, this special insight that you need to have. And if you have this special insight, you can be saved. It has nothing to do with the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And so these teachers were coming in. And I know for people like Peter, who had done so much to protect the truth, the foundation of the church, he had to be going crazy because people were actually buying this. I mean, think about this. People had decided to come together because of the story of Jesus. Okay? And people were still walking around living who experienced him less than 20 years ago. Some of them may have seen his crucifixion. And they're coming into the church saying, no, that didn't really have to happen. And people are believing him. And so Peter is now in the last days of his life, he's in prison. He's likely, he knows Jesus has told him, you're, you're going to die soon. He told us that last week in the scriptures that, that he'd already been told that he was going to die. And so he's writing this letter, trying to wake people up, trying to get them to understand what's going on. And Peter is looking back over his life. He started out as a fisherman. He ended up being an apostle and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he's experienced everything in his life that God had planned for him. Soon he would experience a death similar to Jesus's. He would die for the faith, killed by people who hated Jesus. Church tradition is that he said he wanted to be crucified upside down because he didn't deserve to die the way that his Savior had died. As an apostle, Peter had been entrusted to protect and guard the very foundation of the living church of God. He'd been given the truth, everything that God wanted revealed to man, given to him to protect, to record, and to pass on as a legacy. Imagine Peter at this point is not a happy camper. It seems to me from reading and studying his words that he is seriously ticked off. In this passage, he is four plus angry. And you can't read the second chapter of 2 Peter and not see that it is just dripping with fury. His words in this chapter are full of righteous indignation, disgust, anger, fury. Just pick whatever adjective you want to pick. Peter's ready to explode here. 
There are times in our walk with Christ when the most appropriate response should be fury. Let me repeat that. There are times in our walk with Christ when our most appropriate response should be fury. In fact, one of the things that we've lost in the church today is anger at sin. Not sinners, anger at sin. Indignation at rebellious hearts. And blood boiling response to circumstances that offend God and should offend us. Paul tells us that at times we should be very angry. In fact, if things that offend God don't offend us, the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. You see, we're afraid as Christians today to get angry. We're afraid to offend people by what God has said because it might be offensive to them. We're more concerned about offending man than we are about offending God. And one of the things I loved about the first century Jewish people is that they knew how to respond to things that offended God. They immediately separated themselves from the ugliness of what was going on in that person. They stepped back. They tore their clothes. They poured ashes over their head. Most of them ran off with horror in their eyes at the sin they had just witnessed. They made sure that everybody around knew that not only were they offended, but God was offended. They stepped back because they expected a lightning bolt to strike. Literally, they expected God to take out that person. Why? Because He'd done it before. Bring part of the tithe into the church. Boom. So when they saw sin, when they saw somebody in rebellious, outright sin, they had two responses. Step back and get out of the way and make sure everybody knows that you recognize that's not what God is and that you're offended because God is offended. We've lost that as a church. If you were to take a first century Jewish person and put them in Las Vegas or on a red light district in any town in America, any large city, they would scream, they would run around like wild men, they'd tear their clothes, they'd move from person to person, their eyes would be screaming, how can this be? And they'd do everything in their power to get as far away as possible. Christians today walk by this stuff and say, where do you want to go to dinner? In fact, Satan has so perverted our world that if we even hint that we're offended by sin, offended by the things that offend God, that we're out of control, we're intolerant, and we're offensive ourselves. A few weeks ago, I, I talked about how I spent a lot of time listening to my grandfather. And he would tell me stories. And one story I remember that he told me was that his church had been in the city that he was uh, living in for over 50 years. And they met every Sunday and Wednesday night. That means they're Baptists. They met every Sunday and Wednesday night. Except for one Wednesday night in all the 50 years, they decided not to meet at the church. That one Wednesday night, the church decided that something was occurring in their community that needed to be shut down. And the church that night had to go out and stop this offense because it was offending God and it was coming into their city. 
He told me there was a moral cancer moving across the country, and if they decided to let it continue, it would destroy God's people and it would hurt the generations to come. In fact, the threat was so great that all the churches in town closed down that night. That Wednesday night, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, Episcopalians, even Catholics, and even what he called the Holy Rolling Assembly of God people showed up. And even in the South in the 1940s, this threat was so great that white and black men and women stood for God that night. Their presence was so strong that almost no one dared cross the line towards that sin. What was the sin that closed churches that brought together all the followers of Jesus and brought together races and denominations? What was so offensive? An attack my grandfather said at the core of society, right downtown, I remember him saying, in the middle of businesses here where children and young adults are walking around and parents are letting them do it in plain sight of what's going on. Now surrounded by over 500 people on their knees praying, crying out to God to take this offense away from their community, opening night of the movie Gone with the Wind. <laughs> they knew that God was so offended by what would be on that movie screen. They knew that movies were becoming popular, that Satan would use them to infiltrate the generations to come if the church stood silent. Did you ever wonder why the line from that movie that's so famous is so famous? It's because all over the country churches in the 1940s were shocked and offended at the first curse word ever in movies. And they knew if they allowed it, it would continue to grow. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. They understood something that we forget. Every time that term is used, there's an implied subjective God that's silent. The only place damnation ever came from was God. When they used that word, they were calling down the name of Jesus to condemn something. God's name was being used in vain right on the big screen, right in the center of their town, and they weren't going to stand for it. When people tell me that I'm an old prude, and it happens a lot, unbending and stubborn, I just think, man, you should have met my grandfather. <laughs> he actually knew how to be offended when God was offended. Jesus taught us that there's times when we should be furious. There's times when we should have a fuming anger, not at people, but at the sins they're doing that offend God. Let me repeat that. Not at people. We should be offended by the sins that people do, including our own, by the way. When we see God's name dishonored, we should respond with righteous indignation and anger at Satan. John 2.13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. The Passover, one of the highest holy days on the Jewish calendar, one of the, one of the feasts where everybody had to travel to Jerusalem to come to the temple to make sacrifices for their family, to remember the blood that was shed the night that the Israelites left Egypt, how God had protected them with the blood of the lamb over the doorpost so that God's wrath would pass over. 
The city is overflowing. Pilgrims from all over. All Jewish people have to be at the temple. They come from all over. They usually waited until they got near Jerusalem to begin to buy their sacrificial animals. It was easier. They didn't have to travel with them. So people who sold animals would flock to Jerusalem to provide that need. And honestly, not having to travel with the animals made the sacrifice just a little bit easier. Why? Because you weren't bringing Fluffy from home, your favorite lamb, to sacrifice. You were buying a new one that you kept for four days or five days. And then you sacrifice. It's bad enough. But then they came from all over and they came with different kinds of money. And that money had to be exchanged before they could buy the animals. So these guys worked together. I'll rip them off on the exchange. You sell them the animals. And here's the deal. You're only supposed to sell animals that were perfect for the sacrifice. There weren't that many perfect animals around. Jesus taught that you can worship God or money, but not both. These money changers were in the temple on that holy day worshiping money. They unfairly exchanged money and took advantage of people so they could profit, and it ticked Jesus off, and he's furious. In addition, those who sold animals tried to pass off blemished animals as worthy of the price of a perfect animal. And then what would happen is they had to take the animal in a few days to the priest to have it examined, and the priest would reject it. And by the time that happened, these people were gone. You see, because everybody had to buy the animal a few days ahead of when it got examined. And they also knew that if you got this far, got to the temple, and you didn't have an animal, you were desperate. So they had aligned everything. Their hearts were sick, and Jesus saw it. He knew that these people had traveled a long way, that they'd just been ripped off on the money exchange, that the animals they were getting weren't even sacrificial, and that people were just selling them stuff to get out of town. They charged the price of a perfect animal, but these animals they sold were rejected. And Jesus walked into the temple that day, and he saw not only what was going on, but he saw what was truly in the hearts of the people. And he was furious. His anger was righteous in defense of himself, God. Notice, though, he's not out of control. You see, when we see anger in our world, we picture somebody who's out of control. We see rage. We see human anger. And usually that human anger, somebody needs to calm it down or something bad's going to happen. God's rage is always measured. It's always perfectly in control. It's a perfect, correct, adequate response to the offense. Never too much, never too little, perfect. Human rage is out of control. And Jesus' response here is calculated. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Don't miss the symbolism here. Jesus made a whip of cords on Passover. And he used it on people who were bringing false lambs to the sacrifice. In a very short time, Jesus himself would be on the other end of that whip, a whip of cords. The situation would be reversed. Here we would have Jesus 
God driving out sinful hearts and fake sacrifices out of His house, His temple on Passover, and yet the first time a whip was used in the temple of God, we are told it's by Jesus. It's not on Jesus. It's righteous. It's not rebellious. It's measured. It's not menacing. And yet both are cleansing in a weird way. First time a whip is used, Jesus has it in His hand. Soon these people would take a whip and they would drive the pure and sinless Lamb of God out of God's house on Passover. For our purposes here, God is showing us the difference between a whip that is used in righteous anger to honor and defend God's character and integrity and His name against sinful hearts, and a whip using human anger to defend sinful hearts against God's name. Paul says we're to get angry when God is offended. But not to let that anger turn into sin. Ephesians 4, 25, 6. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. But the story doesn't end here. There's another part of this story that is almost always overlooked. Jesus shows us what it means to have restraint when we're angry. How we can be completely, absolutely furious at what, one, God, what Satan is doing through one person and in the next minute leave it and turn to somebody else and be restrained. Humans can't do that. Humans carry their rage from one person to the next, to the next, to the next. Once they get started, they can't stop. God is very measured. I'm going to respond in fury to this, these people doing this thing and then I'm going to have a measured response to other people doing something else. Watch this. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the oxen. And he poured out the coin of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Do you see it? Do you see the restraint? Jesus uses a whip, gives them no warning, and went after those who sold sheep and oxen and exchanged money. His wrath was poured out on those people whose hearts were focused on money. But then there was another group there that day. They sold pigeons. Pigeons were used for sacrifice only by those who were too poor to buy anything else. God had provided a way for those who were poor to still make a sacrifice. He states in Leviticus that two pigeons or two turtle doves could at times substitute for an unblemished lamb. The grace God gives to those who were poor is well known to Jesus and His family. When Jesus was a baby presented at the temple, Joseph and Mary presented for the Messiah birds. They were too poor. And when time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought up him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to come from a family that has nothing. And yet still have a heart that wants to sacrifice for God. It's another place in the Bible where understanding the historical context opens up God's truth. You see, there's no money in selling pigeons. They're everywhere. 
They're hard to catch, but just go to any big city. Finding a pigeon is not a difficult thing to do. There are people who sold pigeons knew that those who were going to buy them didn't have any money. Often they gave them away. Many were too old to catch a pigeon on their own, so these people were providing a service, taking only what someone could afford, and that was usually nothing. Interesting that when it comes to pigeons and turtle doves, I can find nowhere in Scripture where God says it has to be without a blemish. God wanted the poor to avoid being burdened by the sacrifice that was necessary for them. He's always watching out for the poor. He's always watching out for those who have a heart to sacrifice and cannot come up with a sacrifice. In fact, if they couldn't afford pigeons, they could give a small amount of wheat. You see, it isn't the amount of the sacrifice, it's the heart within the sacrifice that God pays attention to. You may remember the mighty woman in Scripture, Mark 14, or 12, 42. And a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had and all she had to live on. Now, it's interesting, in the Greek, offering box means happy bucket. <laughs> Just saying. All right. So, Jesus goes out of His way to care for the poor. And He goes out of His way to try to help them. He told those who sold pigeons, He told them, whip, drive them out, turn and talk. Restraint, fury. Two different hearts. Over here we have a heart of people ripping people off, selling false animals, there for the purpose of money. Over here we have people who are doing the right thing with the right heart. They're just in the wrong place. Jesus is standing in the temple, furious, righteous anger, holding a whip. He's likely breathing heavy, beet red, sweating. He has just whipped and driven out people. He's turned over tables. The people are backing away and freaking out because the Roman guards are going to come. And in the midst of that event, he shows restraint and he turns to those who are selling pigeons. He says, look, your heart's right. You're just in the wrong place. He didn't turn over their tables. He didn't drive them out of the temple. We didn't hear about doves and turtle doves flying up into the air. The word in Greek does not imply screaming, attacking. He simply spoke to them. And he said, take these things away. Let's don't do this in my father's house. It's not a place of trade. Two completely different responses to two different set of people. So I told you all that to tell you this. When Peter's writing the second chapter of his second letter, he's a lot like Jesus standing in the temple with a whip. His righteous anger is boiling as if it were an email that would be bold, all caps, and in red, and sent twice, <laughs> with a response. These false teachers are coming into God's house, His sanctuaries and homes of the church of Jesus, and trying to destroy the very foundation of the faith that Peter is about to die for. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets arose just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. 
and many will follow in their sensuality, and because of the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. And I think Peter is reminding himself as he writes that we need to let God handle vengeance. I believe that Peter wants to attack out of human rage and the Holy Spirit is restraining him so he grabs his pen instead of a whip. And under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he remembers God's justice. He remembers that God is the one who brings vengeance. He remembers that God is the one who brings wrath. Peter wants these people punished. He wants them punished right now. And maybe you've been there. God, what are you waiting on? Why are you letting these people get away with this? Zap them, Lord. Go ahead. I'm watching. Zap them. And I believe Peter, like David, is crying out to God. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O God, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider the answer me, Lord. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Peter's in the same place. I'm about to die. It's going to look like I lost. God, do something. But at the end of that psalm, David turns and he says, but I will remember. I will remember your steadfast love. I will remember, God, that you're just, that you're right, that everything will be set right one day. And in the same way, Peter tells us an if-then story. His eyes are likely drifting back to experiences with Jesus. He's telling us what he knows to be true about God. And he starts out with three examples. If... 2 Peter verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, and cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If God did not spare the angels. Apparently fallen angels are in two categories. Some are bound in hell for eternity. Some are on earth as demons. The sin of angels can be thought of in two ways. The original rebellion of some angels against God and the sins of the sons of God that's described in Genesis chapter 6. Man is made in the image of God. Now this is something people don't really talk much about. Remember that Satan hates man. Have you ever wondered why? I'll give you some examples. Man's made in the image of God. Angels are not. Satan and his angels resented the plan long ago that would bring us more closely connected to God than they are. Though mankind is beneath the angels in dignity, it is the job of angels to serve mankind at God's direction. Satan and his angels resent a plan that would command them to serve lesser beings. Redeem mankind, after we're redeemed, will be lifted and have status above all angelic beings. Satan and his angels resent a plan that would glorify in these lower beings to have places above them. So from a demon standpoint, these humans who are fallen, mistaken, don't even, haven't even seen God, we have to serve them. And then after we serve them, they're going to be redeemed and they're going to rule over us. Satan doesn't want that to happen. 
We can't conclusively say we know why the angels sinned against God because Scripture doesn't tell us why. But here's what Peter wants you to know. God did not refrain from punishing angels who sinned. And he hurled them to hell where they're being kept chained in darkness until the day when he will judge them. Then he goes to another if. If he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter tells the story of the flood to remind people that in the past God did not restrain from punishing people who were in rebellion. In the Genesis account, Noah is described as a good man, but Noah walked with God. And in Jewish tradition, he is held up as the person of moral excellence. Noah then stands for the faithful people who will follow God. So Peter's saying, look, God punished the people in the flood because they were unrighteous, but he protected those who were righteous. He continues. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. God condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, causing them to burn until they were ashes. He made them a warning to people who disobey him. And he continues, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, that's new information for us, I'll get that in a minute. He's greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now in this verse, you may not remember this, but in Genesis, Lot is not exactly cast as a righteous person. Right? In the Genesis story, Lot's the one that runs up and says, here, take my daughter. Okay, he's not the one that's cast as this righteous person. Peter's given us new information here. What he's saying is, look, you don't know his heart. He was greatly distressed. He was greatly offended. He is a righteous person in an unrighteous city. Peter tells us this new information. What Peter's saying is, look, God knows his heart. And in every circumstance, when God begins to boil, when we start to see fury and anger rise up, it's the heart of people God's focusing on. Because their heart is either following Satan or him. He lived day after day and was tormented. So here's what Peter says. He says, look, if God judged those who sinned, the angels, if God judged the ancient world in Noah's day, and if God brought down wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah, therefore the ungodly have no reason to believe they won't be punished too. And I can trust God in my anger and wrath that punishment is His to deal with. Jesus says it will be better than those who are in Sodom. On that day of judgment it will be better. Then Peter says, okay, if those things are true, then, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despising authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. What Peter's saying is here, look, I want to destroy them. They're about to destroy my church and I want to wipe them out. But that's not my job. My job is to separate from their sin, be offended by it, and point it out. God is responsible for what He wants to do with it. 
I'm going to trust God with vengeance and, and wrath and his anger and his judgment because he's just. I saw it with Noah. I saw it with Sodom and Gomorrah. I know that's who God is. I can leave it for him. But then he says, and oh, by the way, remember who we're talking about. We're talking about people who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Those are the Gnostics. What Peter's saying is, look, I have a pen in my hand, but I want to whip. I want to go after him. I want my last dying effort to be to protect the word, to protect Jesus, like I tried to do when I cut the guy's ear off. I want to go out fighting, but I'm going to fight with this pen. And I'm going to trust God with judgment. Where did Peter learn that? When he cut the guy's ear off. Jesus said, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, let me deal with this. This is not what we're here to do today. It'll get taken care of, leave it to me. Peter learned that in the garden. Now he's applying it here. The Lord delivered Noah. He delivered Lot. He knows what he's doing. The unjust have reservations made for them in the day of judgment. And Peter's going to go on and he's going to tell us about the day of judgment. He's going to tell us about how there's a day coming. These people have been condemned from long ago. He's reminding himself and us that God's going to handle this. He proceeds then to draw a conclusion that God knows how to take care of all these things. And he basically says, look, since the Lord's done all those things, it shows that he knows how to rescue godly people from their suffering and punish evil people until the day of judgment. Now then, immediately after this, Peter goes into his rant. 24 characteristics of false teachers that we studied last week. I flipped these because I wanted you to see the characteristics separate from the anger. Peter is furious. And now he's going to go and he's going to start telling you, these people are bold. They despise authority. And he goes into 24 things. If you missed it, watch last week. 24 things that characterize these people. And every time he's putting it down on paper, he's essentially letting his anger out. He's venting through the Holy Spirit and he's reminding himself that God knows these things and he'll take care of them. And he goes on. For if after they escape the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled them and overcome, the last has become worse for them than the first. He's talking about those false teachers. He's talking about people who are listening. He's, his focus here is, look, they're entangled in the things of the world. Now, this is one of the most hotly debated verses in Scripture. We could spend thousands of years here talking about this verse and what it means. It is the most common verse that people point to to say that you can lose your salvation. When people read that verse, he's, they're saying, look, these Gnostics, these false teachers, they escape the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Then, after doing that, they were entangled once again, and the last state's worse for them than the first. And people point to that verse and they go, see, you can lose your salvation. Because every word in this passage is true. There's no funny Greek here. When he talks about escape the defilements of the Lord through the knowledge of our Lord, it's the same language used when people are saved. 
that they come to a knowledge of the Lord. And truthfully, many of you know that I firmly believe you cannot lose your salvation. But if the only verse I had was this one, I might agree. And rather than dive into a long theological argument about how there's so many other scriptures that don't support this, that I believe in many ways these people were not saved, but people have debated this for 2,000 years. And the problem is that's not even the point Peter's trying to make here. Here's the point. If it was only by this verse, because in the scripture it says, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Peter's focus here is on his anger. It's on their punishment. Peter's saying, look, this is what we all know to be true. It is better to not know of Jesus at all than to know of him and reject him. That's the point Peter wants to make. Okay, he's not making some dialogue into the whether people are saved can lose their salvation. What he's saying is, look, we all can agree. Whether we believe that you can lose your salvation, here's what we can agree on. If you know Jesus and reject him, it's got to be worse than if you never heard of him. And what Peter's saying is these Gnostics knew. They know the story. Whether they have saving knowledge, I don't know if that's what Peter's talking about. But they know who Jesus is. They know the story. They know what he did. They were here. They saw him. They heard about him on the resurrection. They heard about him on the cross. They know people who were there. And they are rejecting what they know to be true. Or at least what they know to have happened. And that's worse than people who have never heard. And then he says... What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Pigs will be pigs, he says. They can't help but do this. What he's saying is, look, God has saved judgment for them. I can, I can hold back on the wrath part. It's not my job to pour out my anger on them. It's my job to be offended by their sin. These people are returning to their own vomit. They're pigs. Now remember, pigs for Jewish people are probably the lowest thing you can call somebody. Unclean animals. Pigs. Peter is saying, look, these Gnostics who have special knowledge, they're pigs. Jesus had a whip. Peter had a pen. Both are furious. Both are defending the name of God. And neither of them sinned. They left vengeance up to God, but they made sure people knew that when God's name is attacked, that they're going to defend. There was a time not too long ago when God's people remembered how to be offended in the name of Jesus. There were times when standing up for God was the right thing to do. There were times when standing up for God is the only thing to do. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you got angry in Jesus' name? When was the last time people around you knew that you were offended? When they took the Lord's name in vain? Or when they talked about God? Or when they endorsed sin that offends God? you have any torn clothes in your spiritual closet? 
You see, we've been lured to sleep. We're like the people that go out and play in the ocean. You start out thinking you're just having a good time. You think you're doing the right thing. You think that you're holding and staying in one place. You think you're stationary. You think your foundation is firm and you think you're holding and staying where you're supposed to be. But then you look up and all, the real, all of a sudden you realize the current has taken you way downstream. And you thought you were standing firm. But over time, while you were living your life, all of a sudden you realize that you've come over here and you weren't holding firm at all. In fact, you've now drifted because the current of society has taken you to a new place. And that's exactly what's happened to Christian people. You see, we think we're holding our ground, but we're not standing against the cultural current. Slowly, almost imperceptibly, the culture moves us. We don't fight it. We aren't on, God, on guard. We think we're holding our ground for God and we're actually being swept away. By the time we wake up and realize it, we can't even see where we started from or how to get back there again. Let me remind you of a prayer Jesus told us about where he said, hallowed be thy name. To hallow something means to keep it holy, to separate, to lift it up, to sanctify it, to set it apart. God, your name, the name above all names, may it be held in the highest regard. That's what that prayer means. Our Father who art in heaven, the very first thing after acknowledging that we have a Father in heaven, he says the first thing, remember in Jewish prayers and in Jewish lists, the first things are most important. Hallowed be your name. No matter what happens on this earth, no matter where I go, no matter what happens to me, may I always hold your name in high regard. May I never let it be attacked without me defending your name. Hallowed be your name. God's reputation, God's name has to be protected in our world. And guess who are the only people left on the planet who can do it? Us. He's to be set apart as holy in this world, particularly by the people who claim to be his people. name should always be protected, always set apart, never taken in vain, never shamed, never. And if we don't do it, nobody will. When was the last time you could remember taking a stand or a risk standing up for God's name? When's the last time you had righteous anger over what people were trying to tell you is not a sin? We have to be alert to what's happening to God's name around us. I don't believe you can watch television for 15 minutes on most channels without being offended for God. I'm not suggesting that you make it your mission to go get a whip, to go on the offensive, to attack everyone who doesn't honor God or His name. Rather than go on the offensive, why don't we just start with, we're offended? 
Believers in Jesus need to learn again, particularly now in the end times, to let people know how they feel about God's name being discounted. We need to know, let people know how we feel when his name is dismissed or dissed. When God's name is dissed, you should be... Yeah. Let me give you this final thought. It's one from Jesus. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my fathers in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. Leave vengeance up to God. Get angry, don't sin. But when God's name is attacked in your presence, sometimes tables need to be turned. If you deny me on earth, I'll deny you in heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you give us examples of what to do with our anger. I thank you, God, that you show us how righteous men handle their anger and their offense in your name. God, forgive us because I believe we've allowed the current culture to drift us far, far, far from where you planned for us to be. In 1940, my grandfather was offended by one word can't imagine what he would think now. God, help us to have the courage to stand for you. Help us to be more focused on protecting your name than protecting our reputation. Help us to be more concerned about how the world sees you than how they see us. Help us to be bold in love. Help us to learn the difference between hating the sin and hating a sinner. Help us to leave vengeance up to you. But God, we should go through our days defending your name. Or we need to stop praying the prayer. Hallowed be your name is a reminder to us that it is our responsibility to protect your name on earth to promote the truth of who you are. And our silence is overwhelming in this culture and underwhelming in your presence. We love you. We thank you that you forgive us, that you give us new chances. So God, help us walk in those new chances starting today. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I told you this Peter thing was going to get intense at times. A um, couple of announcements, and then we're going to let you go. Uh, Happy Bucket is in the back. Uh, feel free to give as your heart leads and as God leads. Um, for those that didn't hear it, uh, I want to let you know that um, uh, a praise report from last week is we had to come up with $50,000 in three and a half weeks, and amazingly, that happened. Um, and I say that because it's interesting that we, we have an audience here, and then every week we have between two and 400 people that watch online. And those people responded. Uh, and we got checks from people I've never met before. So I'm so thankful that God works in ways we don't even have a clue, right? 
Um, next thing is we had our Saturday night service last night. It went really well. Um, we're excited about what happened there. Um, the other thing I want to tell you is that I have launched the podcast. It went out on our Facebook page that it's out. Uh, it's called Frank Bible Truth. And basically what I've done is I've taken the series of revelation that I did year and a half or two years ago, and I've put it out in a series of podcasts. Uh, so people that you know, if they're wondering what's going on, uh, obviously with the virus and everything, people are asking me a lot of questions. I thought, well, I'll just repost that out there. Uh, so you can go on, you can listen. Uh, there'll be 23 total. And when that one's done, then I'm going to post the series that we did on the temple of God and His holiness. So if you're interested in those things, and after that, I think I'm going to go and post one from before that, uh, which had to do with the Jewish feasts. So those will be out on podcasts. Um, there are great opportunities for people to listen to God's Word uh, as we go around. So I encourage you just to tell people about that Frank Bible Truth. It's on Spotify, iTunes, or anywhere you can find podcasts. All right, why don't you stand up for me? Guess what I'm going to say. It's time to be offended in God's name with love. Go defend His name this week. Pay attention to the number of times God gives you that opportunity. And then act on it. Because if you deny him here on earth, he's going to deny you in heaven. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you back next week. Thank you.